I'm Sean Delaney, and you're listening to What Got You There. What Got You There is a must-follow for entrepreneurs, creatives, high achievers, and change makers. Each week, I sit down with some of the world's most influential people and focus on the journey behind their success. We uncover the strategy, tactics, and routines that help them get there. Now it's your journey, so it's time to learn what's going to get you there. Uh, what got you there? What got you? Got you? If you're enjoying the podcast, then you might want to check out some of the other things I'm working on behind the scenes. I put out a weekly newsletter called Momentum Monday, which is just a quick synthesis of everything I've been reading, listening to, and watching during the week. I also do a once-a-month deep dive called The Distillery, which is a long-form distillation on someone whose thinking has greatly impacted me. You can check out past distillations of Josh Waitskin, Yen Liao, and Nick Konis, and everything else we're putting on at whatgotyouthere.com. Today, I sit down with Scott Lynn, who's the founder and CEO of Masterworks. You might remember Scott from our episode on 137 a few years ago when Masterworks was still a young company. And what Masterworks is, is an investing platform that allows anyone to invest in high-end arts like uh, Andy Warhol or Basquiat or a Banksy painting. And the reason I love having these types of conversations for round two is we get to uncover what it's been like the past few years where Scott's taken an idea and now turned it into a billion-dollar company. And what we uncover is what it's like being the CEO of a company. What are the pressures? What are the things he's constantly thinking about? How he makes decisions and then how he grows his team and his company. So this is a really fascinating and interesting conversation that uncovers entrepreneurship, investing, understanding different domains, the art world. So it's a wide-ranging conversation, but one that's super deep and very interesting for being able to understand and conquer multiple domains. Anyone who's interested in investing in high-end art, I think you're going to want to listen up to the latest support of the podcast, and that's the company Masterworks. And Masterworks is an online investment platform valued at over a billion dollars, and they give everyone like you and me an opportunity to invest in high-end art. And when I say high-end art, I'm thinking about Picasso, Warhol, or Banksy. And this is an opportunity for all of us to get in on investments and potentially build generational wealth. And if you think about contemporary art, it is actually outpaced the S&P 500 by almost threefold from 1995 to 2020. And what Masterworks understands and what they do is they actually understand that investing in high-end art is really hard. And most of the time, you have to sell a major tech company or ransack a museum in order to have the ability to invest in these pieces. And what Masterworks does is they buy a piece of art, and then they file it, the work with SEC, sort of like filing for a public company IPO. And then we can buy shares representing an investment in that painting. And so Masterworks holds the piece, and when they sell, we would get a prorated portion of the profit. And I know people invested in Masterworks, and some of these early adopters saw a 32% return on a Banksy sale in 2020. So if you're interested in diversifying your investment portfolio and investing in high-end art, I think you'll want to check out Masterworks. So go to masterworks.io slash there to get priority access to their exclusive community. Once again, that's masterworks.io slash there. You can also see important disclosures at masterworks.io slash disclaimer. Are you looking for a delicious and healthy nutrition bar that is keto-friendly, low-sugar, and protein-infused? If so, look no further than New School Snacks, who's reinventing the low-sugar snacking revolution. 
Now, for me, health is one of the biggest things I think about, and eliminating the sugar from my diet is crucial, and that's why I love New School Snacks. So if you're one of those people who also want to change the way you approach nutrition and snacking, then head to NewSchoolSnacks.com for great deals on their collagen bar loaded with healthy fats from MCT oil, and while you're there, pick up one of their brand new mouth-watering French Toast Crunch Bars. That's NewSchoolSnacks.com. Scott, welcome back to what got you there. How are you doing today? Thanks for uh, thanks for having me. I'm doing I'm doing well. Fantastic. I, I'm always curious. So it's five p.m. on a Wednesday. Like, how are you feeling at the end of a day like this? Just just running a, a fast just, growing company. Yeah, I was actually feeling exhausted, yeah. but uh, <laughs> I did I did I didn't want I didn't want you to call attention to that. <laughs> I, no, I'm, I'm always intrigued. Right, like there, there's so many decisions you have to make throughout the day. We're, we're going to cover some of the decision making frameworks, and I, I know we covered a lot of your backstory. You were originally on episode 137, so I'm like really interested in the evolution both of you and the masterworks. But I would love to know: is there a mindset you have that if you could just pass on to pretty much like any young person starting out, you think would be incredibly beneficial for them? Yeah. So I, I think the thing that I've learned throughout the years, like when I think about the past 20 years of starting different companies and, um, you know, learning along the way, I think the thing that that's been most impactful to me is really deciding what to do. Um, and, and I think so many of us I was actually talking to someone about this the other day. I think, I think particularly when people go from job to job, they do it in a very suboptimal way because most people, when they, they start looking for a job, they look for a job for 30 days or 60 days, and they wind up in in the next thing that's available that that fits their needs, right? But that's a really suboptimal way of thinking about how to take your next step. And I think I think starting companies is similar, right? Like you you want to be really thoughtful around what market do you go into? Um, you know how, how how does your pricing strategy work? Um, how do you stay differentiated? Um, so I I think the thing that I've learned throughout the years is really figuring out you know where to spend time rather than just executing really rapidly or working really hard every every single day. That's really interesting. How did that actually play out when deciding to actually launch Masterworks? Well, Masterworks is sort of this really lucky evolution of, of doing something I love, which is which is collecting art for the past 20 years and kind of combining that with with finance and technology. Um, but, you know, Masterworks was, was this, I, I think the idea, the, the idea really started sort of at the very early um, phase of the crypto industry, right? And a lot of people were talking about how do you tokenize assets? How do you how do you make things more accessible? How do you democratize things? And it's funny because I, I you know, I've, I've sort of lived with this great art collection personally for many years, but never really thought about how to build investable invest investment products um, around it. So, you know, that light bulb kind of turned on four years ago. And it just occurred to me that this is probably the largest asset class that's never been securitized. There's never been an investment product built for it. Um, when you look at the performance of the asset class, it's historically appreciated faster than, than things like, like public equities. But the only way to allocate to it is if you have millions of dollars to buy a painting. So it, you know, it's, it's generally inaccessible. Um, so I think when I started thinking through it, it's just all of those, those dynamics felt really good. We did some um, some early testing to figure out is there product market fit? Do people actually want to invest in a product like this? We saw really good signals, and then we just we, we started scaling it. You, you mentioned those early days, just testing some things out. Like, what else is happening there? I, I think so many people are just intrigued. It's like, okay, here's an idea. It's kind of kind of experimenting a bit, but then I'm going to take that leap. Like you mentioned, like you're you're about to end, enter a multi decade journey here uh, in terms of the company. So I'm just wondering what, yeah. what are the other little things going on then. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think with any business, particularly as an entrepreneur, it's easy to it's easy to convince yourself that your idea is great, right? And and and, and, I, and I, I see this so many times across across lots of different people. I hear them pitch me ideas, and I'm just thinking to myself, I don't understand how this this makes sense at all. But you know, sometimes we just become, and I, I've done this myself many times, like so passionate about something, so entrenched in something, it, it, you just don't you don't know when to give up. Um, so we like to be, I like to be really methodical around how, how I think about starting a business. And that's, that's coming up with the idea, really understanding things like the, the total available market, um, how big is the market? Are there any competitors in the market? But then also starting, starting to test very simple product ideas. So one of the things that me and other people on our teams have done before is when we come up with a business idea, we literally build a fake website for the business. We run advertising on Facebook and other platforms to see, um, you know, how much receptivity or kind of what the relevancy scores or just the engagement scores are with that product concept. And that that in itself has killed so many different business ideas I've had because you come up with a great idea and then you put it in market and, you know, you think everyone's going to love it. And all of a sudden you're paying $400 a lead and, you know, the, the ads are getting no response and, it, you know, it just doesn't work. So you quickly shut it down. But I think... I think iterating in those those really early stages to test different business ideas is critical. Um, and I think as an entrepreneur, you learn a lot from that. No, this is great. You're even bringing up confirmation bias, right? Like, oh, I, this is my idea. I'm right. looking for every single thing to confirm this. Uh, I'm wondering today, like, how are you battling against that amongst yourself, right? Like being CEO? You, you always, I, I mean, you know, it's, it's funny. Like, I think, I think introspection is really hard. I think, I think people in general are, are not good at, you know, being introspective and maybe that's, maybe that's confirmation bias for whatever reason. But I think, I think you always kind of have to, to, uh, to second gear, second guess yourself at, um, um, you know, who, uh, like Andy Grove, like always, always be paranoid, right? Like there's always, there's, there's some dynamic like that, that I think is, is really healthy. And, and a lot of these businesses and markets are changing so fast too, right? Like the people that you have on your team today may not work tomorrow. The strategy that you have today may not work tomorrow. So, you, you know, you, you're always trying to avoid confirmation bias. Although I think, I think avoiding it entirely is just hard, but um, yeah, I think we're, we're always trying to do that. You mentioned how quickly, how rapidly things change. I'm wondering for you, how do you get to that 30,000 foot view? Where like you can you can zoom in on the micro details, but then you can also zoom out on like okay, what what are we doing five ten years from now? You know, the, so this the zooming in and out thing I think is a really really interesting point. I was actually talking to uh, to one of my friends, is you know not to be named, but one of the top tech founders of all time, and we were talking about how how do we how do you think about <clears throat> you know hiring really successful managers, in particular really successful CEOs, um, to run big companies, and what what skill sets matter and. And one of the things that I think really clicked between both of us was that it's very difficult to find people who are very high level. And by high level, I mean strategic, right? Understand how to think about product, how to think about differentiation, um, what markets to go into, when to partner with someone, when to buy someone, like high level strategic thinking that at the same time can get very low level. Because a lot of these businesses, particularly businesses that are that are SaaS or, or predicated on on very specific LTV to CAC metrics, if you change an onboarding funnel, your CAC goes up forty percent. And and those very small details can have really make or break it dynamics within businesses that I still think in today's world most CEOs don't appreciate. Um, you know, I don't I don't think Harvard Business School is teaching you know minute details around onboarding funnels, which can make or break businesses. 
And there's, there's, there's lots of CEOs that will just say, oh, I'll just hire a marketing person to do that. But <clears throat> those details are so critical that I don't think you can just hire, hire them, right? So I think that the, the thing that that's hard to find is a CEO that moves between really, really high level and really low level and, and just frankly ignores the middle. Like in the middle, you kind of have a middle management layer, which is essential for any company. Um, but you know, it's, it's easy to hire people into those, into, into those roles. It's really hard to hire the high level people and the super, super low level people. So, um, I don't know, there's a little bit of a tangent, but that's kind of how I no, think no, about this, it. This is really interesting. So yeah. I'm glad you went, we went there. How, how would you describe yourself as a CEO, right? Even if I was asking another employee at Masterworks, like what type of CEO is Scott? <laughs> So I'd love, to, I'd love to hear the answer to that question. I mean, so, so I, I think it depends on who you ask, right? So I think certain people would say I'm very high level and totally hands off um, to the point that I just made. And I think other people would say I'm super low level, micromanage every detail. And and the reality is, and I, I, I don't know if people at Masterworks will listen to this or not, but but it's really person dependent, right? If I'm if I'm very low level and very hands on, that probably means that I either think there's big opportunity in that function or I think there's problems with that function. Mm-hmm. And if I'm totally hands off, that probably means that I'm that I'm happy with how that function's running. Um, so I think you know I think I think managers have to be situational um, and really adapt to the business. What does it feel like when you're operating at your best? I think it feels like you're having fun, right? I I, I don't I don't believe in this concept of work life balance. I've never believed in this concept of work life balance. Like at the end of the day. If you're if you're really successful, it's probably because you really love what you're doing and it doesn't feel like work. So trying to to, to put people in this framework where they think of like work life balance, I think I think if you're thinking about work life balance, you just have the wrong job, right? You're just like you know you're just doing something that you don't fundamentally love. Yeah, back um, to your earlier point, right? Like like what is this thing you're about to embark on? I always think about like what ship are you going to get on if you're going to be taking this job, this career? If you're going to be on the ship yeah. for a while, you better be one of those people who are really going to enjoy it. Uh, yeah, and don't 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 get on the wrong ship, right? And there's just so many people that get that get on the wrong ship, particularly in early careers, right? You you think um, so I was telling a, a friend's kid this at one point, but it's sort of like a decision tree, right? Like you know you you sort of you come down, you have two options. From each of those two options, you have two more options, and like making your very early decisions correct are so critical because that's you know you're starting off the decision tree, and if you wind up on the wrong branch. And you wind up in in some place that that you don't want to be twenty or thirty years from now. Um, so I think making the right decisions really early in, in in someone's career is really really important. How do you think about like your ability to impact major aspects of the company with each individual decision? I'm just trying to think right. Like each of the decisions you're going to make, they're going to be weighted differently. And with like those really high impact decisions, what does that process look like for you to finally pull the trigger and make that decision? Well, it's really, it's really, you know, critical decision making. I just think it has to be really thorough, right? It has to be really thorough. You have to second guess yourself to think through all the different situations. Um, you know, try to think through how it plays out. Like for me personally, when, when I, when I do that, it's usually alone, right? I'm thinking about those things alone at night or in the morning. Um, you know, I, I don't know if there's a perfect process for it, but I just think spending a lot of time thinking it through, um, is, is really important. I mean, there, there, there's a lot of people that just do really simple analysis. I would do a SWOT analysis or something. And I, I just don't think any of that stuff has ever really been shown to be predictive or, or particularly useful. Like I do think having a framework in your own, in your own brain to think through kind of cause and effect of things is, is important. But, um, 
think it's just spending spending time and spending the right amount of time on really, really critical decisions. Well, one of the things that seems to keep popping up, you, you mentioned introspection earlier, and it seems like you're pretty self-aware. Like you understand what works best for you and you're not trying to just apply someone else's model on top of you just because you, you heard that was a good model. And so I'm just like wondering about that process for you, just becoming more introspective, really understanding how you operate best. Is that something that you actively think about or is this just naturally occurred? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think... Uh, you know, it's funny though. Like, I don't, I don't know if I'm if I'm not self aware, but I know I'm self. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I'm not sure to think about that. But uh, yeah, I, I look. I think the best CEOs are those that are humble. I think they're it's those that listen well, those that learn, um, those that grow over time. So I, you know, I just think it's I think it's all all of those qualities that that make people successful, um, and just a you know a, a, a natural willingness to want to. Iterate to want to try more to to you know continue to just move ahead. You mentioned just kind of like some of those big things that are typical of successful CEOs. Like what's happening behind the scenes that's really hard as a CEO of a fast growing company that just most people don't talk about or just it's really not known. <sighs> yeah, there's so many things. I guess <laughs> you know it's 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 like. There's there's different phases that companies companies go through, and I, and I think this you know zero to one phrase that, that Peter Thiel came up with is a nice way to think of the the early phase. But going through those phases is hard, right? Masterworks went through the phase of kind of finding product market fit, um, scaling quickly, you know, arguably kind of I, I guess achieving profitability. Maybe that was later in the scaling phase. And today we're really in in, in scale phase, right? Like we we found product market fit. This last Monday, we had 11 people start. We're hiring 30 or 40 people a month. Um, you know, and to a certain extent, like we're we're trying to keep the wheels on the bus, right? Like we're 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 growing quickly from a people perspective. We have tons of new people starting. We're training new people, and and we're trying to make sure they understand our business, our revenue model, the strategy, where they fit into the strategy. But at the same time, also just trying to make sure that they're the right people, and that you know we're making the right bets as we as we scale up the company. So. You know, I think in these 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 hyper growth phases, it's just uh, you know, it's just a lot of it's just a lot of work. Um, so you, you know, it's 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 people decisions um, primarily that I that I would say I'm spending time on now. Oh, then then I'm really intrigued. Like, what are you spending the most amount of time on that just doesn't actively show up on the bottom line, but just has huge impact for the future of the company? I mean, right now it's people, right? So I'm sp- I'm, I'm literally spending six hours a day. And interviews right now. Um, so we, you know, we're, we're just trying to hire. We're talking with me afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I mean, we're yeah, not, not not interviews like this, but but yeah, people interviews. Um, so right right now, that's that's really the that's that's the um, the majority of time, and that doesn't that doesn't have an impact on the bottom line. But those are such critical decisions, right? Like if you look at all data around mishires, and I've just experienced it personally so many times, right? You mishire someone at the senior level. And it's it, it can just be a make or break it make, make or break dynamic, particularly when you're in this this hyper growth phase. Uh, I think it'd be helpful even just to add some context. I, I just don't want to make sure anyone who who didn't listen to episode one just what exactly Masterworks does and just kind of like walk us through the process currently. Yeah, so Masterworks is the first first firm ever to to securitize a painting. Uh, we do that by filing individual artworks with the SEC as public offerings. Um, today we're we're taking one painting public roughly every five days. Um, you know, we're raising right now on a run rate basis about $500 million a year, uh, growing two, three X, um, year over year. So we've, you know, I guess since we've, we spoke last time, like we've, we've become the largest 
buyer in the art market. We're the only firm to provide any sort of investment product to help investors gain exposure to the asset class. Um, we have a secondary market now where people are trading securities and individual paintings. So we've really built out a platform for the, the first time ever for people to uh, invest in art. So essentially, people can buy fractional shares of some of those legendary art pieces um, around, correct? Yeah, and, the, and the, the thesis is that, you know, if you look at the characteristics of the asset class, over the past 25 years, contemporary art is appreciated at 14% a year. Um, it's non-correlated, meaning it doesn't necessarily move in the same direction that the public equities do. So it doesn't go up when the stock market does and decline. It just really behaves, behaves differently, which makes it a very good diversifier for any portfolio. Uh, the challenge historically is the only way to to invest in it is if you have millions of dollars to buy a painting. So we think it's a, a natural asset class to securitize. It's a natural asset class that the people should be able to invest in. Like we we fundamentally believe that ten years from now, people will think of investing in art or allocating to art similar to how they think about allocating to public equities, allocating to real estate, allocating to fixed income. Um, you know, we think it deserves a role in an investment portfolio. Yeah. You, you mentioned Masterworks has achieved product market fit. I, I'm wondering for you as the team, like when, when did you guys, when was that moment? Like when did it click? Like, oh yeah, yeah, we've got this. Uh, you know, it's, I don't, I don't know if there was a, there was a single you guys moment. Didn't celebrate um, the office now? <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't think there's ever a single moment, right? Like we, we definitely, when we started the business, we knew there was, because of all these tests that we had run, as, as I mentioned, we knew there was a lot of interest in and in people investing in art broadly, right? But in order to get the onboarding funnel right, in order to get the investment products right, how we price things, um, e- even just what what type of art we buy, right? Like we didn't we didn't know until we until we founded the firm that contemporary art was appreciating at fourteen percent a year and old masters were appreciating at two percent a year, right? We 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 had an idea around that, but it took us a couple of years to really build out a research team to um, to, to, to help inform us on, on how we think about appreciation in the market. So, you know, a lot of this, this business and making it click was just slowly iterating on every different component until we have a flywheel, which, which today is, is spinning pretty quickly. What is that research process like? How are you, how are you sourcing these pieces? Yeah. So, you know, it's crazy. So the art market, I, I tell people this, this all the time. And I don't think people totally believe me, but, but to contextualize it, the most sophisticated people in the art market today are families. So there are, there are families that have been collecting for multi-generations. They have multi-billion dollar collections. Um, but there's there's nobody, there's not like a professional manager such as Masterworks operating the art market, right? There's nobody with a data analytics team. People aren't using data to make decisions. Sotheby's and Christie's, the two, two leading auction houses are more than 250 years old. Like these businesses literally have been operating the same way for centuries. Mm-hmm. Um, so when we thought about using data to figure out how how different things in the art market were, were appreciating, what we quickly quickly learned is that there wasn't there wasn't a data set. So we we went out and we bought auction catalogs of public auction sales going back uh, to the 19, 1960s 1970s and had a team of thirty interns <laughs> literally do data entry, recording this data into into a database. Which now, if you go to the Masterworks website um, and click on Price Database, you can actually access this this data for free. And, and that data really served as the basis to do index construction on the asset class, understand how, how different segments are appreciating. But it just, to, to me, it was so amazing coming into this market because, you know, I, I don't think there's any other industry that hasn't been digitized in 2020, right? Or, you know, whenever we did that, I guess 2018 or whatever the year was. Um, but, the, you know, we were kind of the first ones to really create a data, data set that can be used to understand performance. 
I know you're probably like, this is a somewhat obvious question, but like, why you? Like, why did you see the white space and then like able, able to capitalize on that? I, we, I get asked that all the time. And I, and I really, I don't, I don't honestly know. Um, the, the things that are, that are hard about the business is that it's a heavily regulated business, right? Our, our, all of our offerings are filed with the SEC. <clears throat> our sales team is licensed by FINRA. Um, everything we do is very complicated from a regulatory perspective. So I think that that is just a really high hurdle that a lot of, a lot of entrepreneurs haven't been able to get over when, when having this idea and lot, lots of people have had this idea historically. Um, I think another one is how we use data to inform what art we buy, how to think about the characteristics of the asset class. We've really been better than, than anyone else um, at that historically. And I think just, just my background in the art market and connections in the art market, it's a very, old school market, you know, it's hard to walk into a lot of these galleries um, or auction houses and buy $20 million paintings if you don't have a reputation or, or a brand in that segment. So, um, you know, there's, I don't know, there's lots of things I can come up with, but it's, but it's surprising that nobody else has, has done it before. Believe me, I'm not looking for like black and white answers. The majority of this, there, there yeah. should be black and white <laughs> answers. I'm just intrigued about like the thought process and some of the, the things, even like you yeah. mentioned, just going into an auction house or, or just having some of these connections, these little things, they all come together. I'm wondering though, were there things that, that you or the team were just spending too much time on? Let's call it over these, these past two and a half years where like in hindsight, it's like, you know what? <laughs> we probably would have pulled, yeah. pulled the cord there a little sooner. Yeah, I mean, I think there were lots of things that we um, that we spent time on in the early stages that 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 did, did not make sense. So I'll, I'll give you an example. So one of the things that that we thought when we first started the business was that we wanted to create a fund product for investors to to buy securities and in, in, in a fund that you know had owned lots of different masterworks paintings, and we could just distribute that fund through family offices and um, in institutions. And this was sort of at the same time that we were creating the retail platform where people could like pick and choose individual paintings to invest in, but we didn't exactly know what the right investment product was. So, you know, the, the easy approach from a very high level 30,000, 30,000 foot perspective is you build this fund, you sell it to a bunch of wealthy family offices, you raise a hundred million dollars, and then you, you know, you go forward. Like that's much easier than building a platform that has to do, you know, automated invest investing, you know, through through lots of different vehicles, or people are picking and choosing paintings and trading securities, etc. Um, but I think what we didn't appreciate with that is that we didn't really have a differentiator in that space, right? Like we were a first time manager, nobody nobody knew us. The asset class was brand new. We couldn't articulate exactly even how fast the asset class was appreciating, how to think about it versus other asset classes. Um, and we really just got no traction, right? So we spent six or twelve months trying trying to do that with with the team, and and, and really got nowhere. Um, you know, we're doing that again today now. But I think today we're four years later. We have a track record. Most people know us. You know, if you're interested in uh, in, in art investment products, people are coming to us anyway. But uh, you know, that's an example of of a, I guess a a strategy that we had early on that we thought made sense high level. That we never we never got off the ground um, for various reasons. Scott, I appreciate this so much. I mean, this is awesome. Like you're you're actually describing how it actually works with starting a company as as opposed to like no 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 like we, flawless idea execution was perfect. Like <laughs> it's, never, the, it's, it's never it's never flawless. No, I know <laughs> this is, this is great though. And like one of the things that just keep popping up is the amount of unknowns and scenarios like that that you're entering where like you just don't have defined outcomes. And so I'm wondering for you, I, I know you've been an entrepreneur for a very long time. How do you get comfortable with going into the unknown and handling that complexity? 
I think you get I think you get comfortable with with knowing you 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 will you won't get comfortable. Meaning, if you in one of my favorite books that I read last year was uh, was Thinking Fast and Slow. Or did you read the book? Mm-hmm. Daniel Common, yeah, um, it was a really great book. And I and I think one of the things that that book highlights is that you know a, a lot of success in life is luck, but if you conclude that it's luck, then then what you do differently is you try to put yourself in, in, in as many situations as possible to be lucky. And I think that's what really successful people do, right? Like we realize that, that a lot of things are, are just luck, but you iterate fast, you try new things, you fail, you know, this term fail fast, you fail fast and you, you just keep, keep moving forward. So I think that's really, really critical. Yeah. You bring up such a good point. Like so many people are willing just to like stop things even before they start where a lot of great entrepreneurs is like, they explore the possibilities. Like, well, let's see what, what's, what's the potential here. What can happen? Yeah, I mean, I think you move into the unknown, see what happens, and then if it, and then if it, if it doesn't work for whatever reason, you move into the next unknown, right? Like everything is effectively an unknown that you just got to get comfortable with. Yeah, you you mentioned Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. I, I have no idea if you even have the, the time to read, but are are you an avid reader? Or are you reading a lot of books or, or other things like that? I mean, I go through I go through phases. I think depending on how how tired I am at night, but yeah, uh, you know, one one of my New Year's resolutions was to get back to reading kind of 30, 45 minutes a night. I wouldn't say I'm, I've been that successful with that this year, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, there's, there's definitely books that have been really influential to me and have shaped my career that, um, you know, that I, that I go back to over the years. Uh, I'm wondering, like, say you could have any entrepreneur, CEO, business leader throughout history and could just like be in your corner that you could just like go through strategy with decisions. Who, who would you love just to have there? You know, so my my answer is is super geeky. So so mine is not um, is not like a well known personality, but it it's Michael Porter, um, who wrote Competitive Strategy, right? So he it's for he, he's he's really been the most influential person in my career in terms of how do I think through business strategy, how do I think about differentiation, um, how do I think about product, uh, and I and I really like I really like what Porter's done because he's basically given business leaders throughout the decades. A very specific framework to think through: How do you position your business? How do you differentiate to capture most margin within within a particular market? And I think that's just a framework that that particularly in today's world, where like everyone wants to be a CEO and everyone's trying a different idea all the time, is is kind of missing. But I I, I think it's one of the most important ideas in business history. I, I love these inflection moments, right? Like where you pick up this book, you're fundamentally different afterwards. Are there any other like key inflection points? I'm just thinking like, like weren't you managing like 70 people as a CEO when you were 17? <laughs> like, I, I still just like crack yeah, up yeah, yeah. for that story. So I'm just like yeah. wondering like how you progress from that. Yeah, I mean, so, so, so you're right. So I started from my first company in high school, which became the most popular game on the internet um, when, I, when I was graduating high school. And uh, that business grew very quickly. So I think, you know, inflection points, I don't know if I would call them inflection points. Like I, I, I would, I would describe, you know, I would describe things as kind of learning phases, I guess. And, and, uh, you know, we talked very early on in the episode, sort of that, that change from focusing on ex- execution to focusing on strategy or deciding what to do. Um, I spent the first 10, 15 years of my career hyper-focused on execution, right? Like people structure process, working hard, working fast, without really thinking about where was I going or what was I working on. Um, now, in the early days of the internet, there was just like so much opportunity everywhere that, that maybe execution was, 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 you know, just as important as anything else. But, um, 
you know, there's, there's so many struggles as a, as a, as an entrepreneur that you go through. I think everyone kind of has people management struggles, right? Like how do you, how do you hire people? How do you coach people? How do you fire people? Um, my thinking on that's definitely, definitely evolved throughout the years. Um, you know, how do you think about strategy? How do you think about product? Uh, what are your weaknesses? Like, who do you hire on your team that, that you, you know, that you, that you really need? So there's, there's, there's lots of stuff, but you know, nothing specific really yeah, comes you to mind, I guess. Execution to strategy, a lot of that involving people as well. Where, where's like the next 10 year learning phase? Like, are you, are you even thinking about that at all? Yeah. You never know, right? Like it's, uh, you, you, it's much easier to recognize this stuff in hindsight, I think, than it is, you know, than it is when, when you're in, when you're in the present. Um, but yeah, I, I, you know, for me, like the, the challenge with masterworks is I've, I've never really been right. I've been in, I've been in tech, I've been in art, I've kind of been in finance, but you know, we're, we're getting sort of deep into the weeds of, of the finance world at this point. So I think a lot of that's been, been a learning for me, um, at least in terms of, of when we think of intermediary distribution and how we act with advisors, how we sell in institutions. So, um, so that's that's probably been my my biggest learning curve, you know this this year. Yeah, final thing around like learning curve and learning phases. I'm just like wondering for you, like what's going on behind the scenes? Like, are there things you're spending a lot of time on that just you know most people would would never even conceptualize or think about, but but you view is like really vital to your success and the company's success. Well, we're we're always, you know, I, I guess when I think about priorities, I, so I always sort of think about like the, the the Stephen Covey model, right, where you have things that are that are urgent and important, and you think you have things that are not urgent and important. And I think as a CEO, you kind of always have to be spending time on both. Um, you know, with our business right now, it just it feels like everything is urgent and everything is important. But to really make progress and hiring, frankly, is is one of those things that's always you know never urgent but always important. Um, you, you know, you, you, you have to focus on, on that category. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I try to avoid, I try to, I guess, divide tasks accordingly and kind of prioritize based on that. I, I know originally, like you're so good at spotting the white space. I'm wondering for you, like where Scott's spidey sense going off with regards to like what's happening in the business world. that's just not obvious to others, but to you, like your blinkers are going off. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, there, I, 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 so I, I, have, I have this list of ideas that I track and I come up with like one business idea a day and then I think about it, you know, I think about them over time and I get rid of 95% of them because I realize 10 days later there was a horrible idea. You know, you can't, I just keep cycling through all these things. So, I, you know, I have lots of different ideas, I, I think, on different industries that are, that are super antiquated. Um, that could still be disrupted, right? Like the, one of the industries that I always talk about that just makes no sense to me is recruiting. Like I, I have no idea why companies pay recruiters, you know, the money they pay to bring candidates in. Um, feels like the the job process of finding a job, um, you know, making sure that it's it's like a dream job for people. It's a great life decision. Um, it feels like that's broken. Um, I also think it's really interesting how when you look at data high level from a macro perspective, one of the things that, that drives, that's, that's clear, clearly drives happiness and in, in every individual human being is friendships. Um, but, but the entire market is really focused on dating. Mm-hmm. I've, I've always found that to be a really, really interesting dynamic. So there's lots of stuff like this that I, that I think still, there's lots of white space out there that still exists um, in different industries that are, that are waiting to be disrupted. 
it's just finding that, you know, that right product or that right way to do it. That's always, always the hard part. How do you channel that creative energy, right? Like I can tell your mind just is going a million miles a minute. I'm assuming throughout the day, like how, how do you challenge that? Or, or is the answer like you're really not challenging, challenging that? <laughs> I, I, I mean, I'm 41 years old now, so I work out with a 24 year old trainer who kills me every morning. <laughs> that's like, that's me. I mean, that's the only way that I kind of manage stress or, um, but yeah, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not good at it, I guess. Yeah. We're, we're all figuring this out. Right. Yeah. I, I, one of the things that I appreciate what you've been able to do is you were talking about like so many of the different industries that, that you've tapped into and then went super deep on. And, and so I'm wondering, are there things that you're studying outside the art world that you think are like really going to greatly influence the art market moving forward? That's a really, that's a really interesting question. I mean, there, there's a couple of dynamics going on in the art market today that I think are, are unique. One is, one is the masterworks dynamic, right? Right. We're taking next year, we'll buy most likely more than a billion dollars in art. And that's entirely new capital that's being dumped into the art market where historically these paintings have really traded between ultra high net worth families living around the world. Um, so, you know, we're bringing a new capital source into the art market, which I think is, incredibly disruptive. And I think a lot of people in the art market, including ourselves, aren't entirely sure how to think about um, how that how that impacts things over time. Uh, you know, this other dynamic within the art market, which is, is interesting, is really we're seeing more of a focus, I think, over the past several decades on, on living artists, um, whereas historically m- much of the returns have been deceased artists. So we're, you know, we're, we're, we're wondering how that impacts kind of the asset class as, as living artists, um, gain more and more momentum, more and more kind of control of the market. I mean, obviously they're living they're they're, they're, you know, they're, they're more risky in certain ways than ones, the ones who are deceased. So I think there's the, the market's changing in terms of what types of artists are valued, you know, like the capital coming into the market is changing, um, and I think a lot of the intermediaries are changing, right? I think Sotheby's and Christie's would say they're focused on selling online more so than in person. That's kind of a COVID theme. Uh, we're seeing a lot of crypto people come into the art market for the first time, particularly for artists like Banksy, Picasso. Um, so there's, there's, there's definitely more change in the art market than I think there has been in you know, decades. What, what living artists is just seeing the most interest right now? Well, the most interest, I mean, I I guess if if you define most interest as the highest appreciation rate, I think the the highest appreciating artist um, that we track over the past year is probably Banksy. Um, You know, Banksy is interesting because our research team identified him as a momentum artist maybe two years ago, and we started buying uh, Banksy back then. And that was somewhat of a controversial decision. Like a lot of people that don't know the art market would say that makes that makes you know total sense. Banksy's a big name, but but Banksy, if you think about it, is actually a very hard artist to back because he's anonymous. Um, he doesn't have a gallery. He's not part of the art world infrastructure. You know, you don't you don't see him at events. He's not you know active with with major collectors. Um, he has a very small body of work. There's there's not a lot of not a lot of Banksy paintings. Um, but we're seeing more of these these pop culture dynamics now influence artist markets, and I, you know, I'm not sure the exact numbers, but I mean, his market's gone up 100 percent probably year over year, um, if not more at this point. So he's 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 clearly been the the, uh, the standout compared to to other artists. What are you guys looking at in terms of the pop culture impact on these specific artists and pieces? You know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a hard question because there's not that many artists that have really pop culture followings, right? Yeah. Banksy has it, uh, cause has it, 
Um, so we, we don't have a big data set to really conclude how, how the pop culture dynamic or the Instagram dynamic for that matter, uh, really impacts these, these artist markets. Like we, we do see more new collectors coming in to Banksy's market in particular. Um, I think we probably see that also with, with cause, but to, to a lesser extent. Um, so, so possibly it's help, it's helping bring in new collectors into their market, um, and, and drive up prices. And generally what we see within the art industry is that once a collector comes in and starts collecting one specific type of artist, they'll eventually start collecting other types of artists over time. Um, so I think, you know, I think that's, that's a, a good dynamic for the market. So are you guys tracking like what are those second order artists they're going to start following and then buy pieces based on that? So like you can be predictive in terms of like what pieces will be more beneficial in the long run. A little bit. I mean, we always tell people that when you look at volatility in the art market, it's it's very hard to predictably make money if you're spending less than five hundred thousand dollars a painting. Okay. Um, the the you know the probability and outcomes is 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 just it's just too wide. So we're generally focusing on five hundred thousand dollar million dollar plus paintings because those those returns are more predictable. There's there's definitely people in the art market that would tell you they can they can predictably buy fifty thousand dollar paintings and they know they'll turn into five hundred thousand dollar paintings. We we think data would show otherwise, but um, yeah. What's the impact of just like NFTs and everything that's going on? I, I know you mentioned like the crypto space is having some impact. Like I, I'm just wondering like how you're assessing all of this. Yeah, so I, I'm I'm the outspoken anti NFT person. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't believe in NFTs for, for two, two primary reasons. So the first is that if you just take a step back and just think about finance 101, the definition of a strategic asset class is, is anything that beats inflation and is non-correlated. Um, that, that's what deserves a role in any investment portfolio. And I think with the NFTs, there's not even enough data to conclude that they're appreciating, right? There's, there's tons of data to conclude that they're hugely volatile. They go way up, they go way down, they go way up, they go way down. But it's not, you know, I, I don't think that that we can conclude that they're they're predictably appreciating. In terms of correlation, I, I think there's a very high correlation between NFTs and Ethereum. It's very high correlation between Ethereum and Bitcoin, and there's very high correlation between Bitcoin and public equities. So we're not we're not really seeing, even if we could conclude that NFTs are appreciating, we're not really seeing them today as a diversifier. Um, for an investment portfolio. So that's, that's reason number one. Like they just don't really meet the definition of what we think of as a strategic asset class. The, the second reason, which I just fundamentally struggle with, and I don't know how anyone gets their head around this. Um, it, it, let, let me, let me use an example to explain it. So if we go out and we buy a $20 million Basquiat painting, which we do all the time at this, at this point, right? We don't actually own the copyright to that painting. The artist foundation owns the copyright. So when you're buying an NFT, you're literally buying an NFT that contains a digital image that you have no copyright or intellectual property rights to. Like you own that image just as much as I own that image. And how people are spending millions of dollars on something that they, they fundamentally have no ownership in just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I stay away from things I don't know. <laughs> That's one of the things I'm like, I, I just got no idea on this. But, but like, this is also highlighting one of the things I'm just so intrigued by, like the number of things you have to be understanding, right? Like you even mentioned you guys are taking something public every what, five to 10 days, which is crazy. Then you have to understand yep. the art world. You've got to understand tech. You've got to understand crypto, everything like that. Like what is your information stream like in terms of just like, what, what's the information you need daily to be able to make these decisions? 
Yeah, it's it's huge, and it's and it's getting bigger at Massworks. So it's really interesting. So we t- today we're focused on fifty five artist markets. Um, there's there's roughly seven thousand artists that trade publicly at auction. Uh, we're, we're focused on a very small subset. Out of those fifty five, we've seen more than ten billion dollars. Uh, in work that's been offered to us privately. So we're, we're now getting to the point where we have this huge data set of private work that nobody else has that just helps us understand how prices are trending in private markets independent of, of the public auction markets. Um, so that in itself is a, is a huge competitive advantage. What, what's just art buying going to look like in five, 10 years? I'm just wondering, like, are there going to be big shifts or is just going to kind of more people investing in, into masterworks? Yeah, I mean, look, I, I think one of the challenges with the art market, which which we've done a good job um, reducing, is is just transaction fees. There, there's too many people in the art market trying to take, you know, too 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 big of a piece of the pie. Like, it, you know, advisors charge ten percent, auction houses charge, you know, anywhere between ten and twenty percent. Um, dealers charge five or ten percent, depending on who's broken the painting. So uh, all of these transaction costs just really make it prohibitive for for collectors that aren't sophisticated um, to to make money in the art market. And I think that's I think that's really problematic. Um, so I, I hope that over time we see transaction costs go down in the market, um, and and we see dealers, galleries just become. You know, more thoughtful around how to bring in new collectors, how to help them understand the market, how to under, help them understand art, not only from a from a cultural significance perspective, but also from an investment perspective, right? I think there should be an expectation that if a dealer tells a collector they should buy something for a million dollars, that dealer has a fiduciary obligation to make a recommendation um, that that's that's right for that for that for that person. Um, so, you know, today the market's just a little bit of the wild west. So I, you know, I think that hopefully changes over time. Interesting. No, I appreciate you shedding some light on that. Uh, I know it's been a long day. We're going to wrap this up here, uh, in a couple of minutes. Uh, I am wondering though, like what's the biggest unknown that you just have question marks on, like that you're like really intrigued by that just, you know, like it's like one of those head scratchers. You're like, I'm going to put some more attention to that. It just got me intrigued right now. Uh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, nothing is really coming to mind, right? I, I, uh, I wish I, I wish I had an answer to that, but you know, I think I'm, I'm just so focused on kind of masterworks in this business right now. I'm not. I'm thinking less and less about other, <laughs> other stuff lately. I'm sure you're probably appreciative of the question at 6 p.m. on a on a Wednesday. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the final one here, and then we'll, we'll link it some more up with in terms of what masterworks is doing. But if you could just sit down with anyone, dead or alive, you would just love having like a deep form conversation with. Who would you love to do that with? You know, so mine mine would be very personal, right? So it, it would be it would be it would be my mom who passed away when I was in my early twenties. Just uh, you know, because you as, as you as you get older, I, I think you you realize your parent relationships are probably very different than how you perceive them as a child. Um, so I you know I think there's lots of questions I, I would ask there um, from a business perspective. You know, I mentioned Michael Porter, who's who's, who's living. Um, I think there's there's other people as well that, that that are just just fascinating. You know, we mentioned Kahneman. Um, I was a huge Jack Welch fan when I was like when I was younger in my in my early twenties. Um, I don't know. I, for me, I, I think really really talking with people that have influenced you and how you think about you know business today, decision making today, life, personal stuff is is most interesting. Final one: Which artist throughout history are you most in awe of? 
<laughs> okay, so my 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 personal answer on this is uh, is this artist named Gustave Courbet, and for people for people who are listening who who know art will know the artist, but he was he was the first um, the first realist artist, kind of founder of, of modernism. And the thing that's so incredible is this painter was painting nude women um, in in nineteenth century France, and at that point in time, it, it was regarded as so crazy, so revolutionary that he was he was exiled from the country. Right, he was he was not allowed to come back. Um, and you can you can go to the Metropolitan and see, and see this painting, Origin of the World, which is this very explicit kind of X-rated painting, which today doesn't really you know it's like anything else. Like you've seen it a million times, but back then it was just it was so so um, significant politically that they 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 exiled him. Um, so I think he's he's one of the most just revolutionary, you know, crazy, amazing painters um, in history that, that I always find fascinating. That's awesome. We'll have everything you mentioned linked up in the transcript and show notes. Um, I'm just wondering, anything else you want to leave the listeners with or any way for them to stay connected with you and what you're doing at Masterworks? Yeah, so to, to check out Masterworks, uh, www.masterworks.io, uh, request access, create an account, um, schedule a call with our with our membership team who basically will walk you through how to think about Art as part of an investment portfolio, how art can can impact um, you know your portfolio, hopefully for the better. Um, and you know they'll talk about investment objectives, allocation rates, uh, how to think about minimum investment, and so on. But yeah, www. Scott Lynn, I can't thank you enough for joining us on what got you there. Thanks for having me. You guys made it to the end of another episode of What Got You There. I hope you guys enjoyed it. I really do appreciate you taking the time to listen all the way through. If you found value in this, the best way you can support the show is giving us a review, rating it, sharing it with your friends, and also sharing on social. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Looking forward to you guys listening to another episode.